Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. We are little men serving great causes, but because the cause is great, something of that greatness falls upon us also. These words were spoken in 1946. The cause was Indian independence. The man who uttered those words was Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister of independent India. But just who was this extraordinarily important figure in the 20th century, and what has been his legacy? With me to discuss the life and times of Nehru is Dr. Benjamin Zachariah, author of a truly fascinating biography of the man. Dr. Zachariah has taught in the UK and has been a senior research fellow at the Karl Jaspers Center at Heidelberg University. He is now at the Georg Eckert Institute, where he's working on a project which examines the changing narratives of the partition of India in school textbooks. He's also the author of a number of works on Indian history and historiography. Dr. Zachariah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. So I'd like to begin uh, our conversation by, by asking you about something you mentioned in the preface to the book, which is that you wanted to write a historical biography in the manner of an interpretive essay, which would in a way decenter, as you put it, its, its central figure, Nehru, which I thought was a very interesting approach. And you pose the following questions, which I'd like to just read for, for our listeners. You write the following, quote, what were the social forces that made it possible for Nehru to rise and to sustain his leadership in the Indian national movement? Or to, put the or to phrase the question somewhat differently, what was it that made possible the achievements and the failures that are credited to the leadership of Jawaharlal Nehru? End quote. Uh, t tell us why you wanted to approach the, the challenge of writing a biography of Nehru in, in this way. Well, I thought that uh, the approach which told yet another story of a great man, didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, also because Nehru himself saw himself as uh, pushed around by circumstances and was uh, in many ways a reluctant leader. He found himself in certain spaces at certain times. Mm -hmm. And so I thought to be able to contextualize this, you could actually talk about his times and where he uh, found himself in those currents. Yeah. That's very in interesting uh, as kind of the way to, to set up um, the book and, and, our, and our conversation. So let's, let's begin the story as it were. He's born in 1889 and his father is Motilal Nehru. He plays a very important role in his, in his life, right? He was a lawyer. Tell us a little bit about his father. Um, the family was a Mughal service elite. They served the, the emperors uh, before. Uh, the British came to power, mm -hmm. and they were from Kashmir, which has always been semi-independent of the rest of India, uh, but has been part of various kingdoms and empires that centered on the modern entity India. Um, they uh, moved to Allahabad, where Motilal was a very powerful lawyer and a very rich man. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was involved with the Indian National Congress, which was an organization supposedly organizing for more representation of Indians in uh, the government of India, which at the time was uh, a British government of India. Right. 
And 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 in the beginning, his father Motilal Nehru is rel is a relatively moderate figure, right? In in the Congress, Nehru is actually more radical than him. Oh yes, uh, Motilal was quite an Anglophile. So there's this paradox that Motilal's primary training is in a kind of Persianate uh, world, but as he becomes more and more involved in an Anglicized lifestyle. He uh, begins to admire a great deal of European and English intellectual and social models, mm-hmm. and um, from a traditional Brahmin family, he uh, is a skeptic, and he was also somebody who didn't uh, maintain caste regulations. So, so he was a very early figure. Uh, in in the history of uh, the Indian National Congress, who believed that a British model was actually, in some respects, a progressive model. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned in the book that his father Motilal is actually punished by his caste, right? Because when he comes back to India, he doesn't perform a certain ritual which you're supposed to perform. Um, now, uh, the, the 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 whole theme of you know the the extent to which uh, Nehru both father and son were were um, very much anglicized. It's a very interesting one. You mentioned in the book that Nehru himself, and I'm speaking about Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, wrote at one point that he was, as it were, the last Englishman to rule India, which is such an interesting remark. He was always making ironic remarks about himself. Mm-hmm. And he was actually admitting freely that the kind of indigenist argument that was becoming very popular uh, the kind of return to the authenticity of a pre-colonial past was not achievable in any real sense. And so, of course, if he refused that argument, he was in many ways the last Englishman. Right. And do you think he had a sense of the way in which that past itself had been, in a certain sense, constructed by the British imagination? Um. Yes, he did. He actually wrote quite... Uh, a longish book in 1946 where he takes on various arguments about the Indian national entity and he tears them apart. In particular, he's interested in this argument that there's a glorious past that must be revived in the present, the kind of palingenesis argument which is common to a lot of right-wing movements. Um, And he says, well, there's nothing particularly useful about glorifying a past which is in many ways not something that we can hold on to. And he makes a very direct comparison uh, between India and China, where he says that these uh, uh, glorifications of past greatness are very bad for modern states because they lead to a backward-looking nationalism. Mm -hmm. And he also was clear that this search for a glorious past was something that was initiated by British Orientalists, but also was uh, an idea used to deny the contribution of uh, any form of Muslim civilization to the long history of India. And so he believed that was drawing on British models in many senses. Right. And, and we'll come back to that because he was always very sensitive about um, precisely the, the historical role that, that Muslim civilization had played in, in India. Now, in, in September 1905, so he's, at this point he's, he's 16, he, he gets sent off to Harrow, which is a, which is a British uh, public school. We should mention for you know listeners who are perhaps are not familiar with the British educational system that public school actually means private school, right? So it's it's kind of a fancy 
fancy uh, private school. And he's there for two years. Um, and then he goes off to Cambridge. He doesn't do particularly well at Cambridge, right? He kind of muddles through. Well, he has a very interesting way of looking at it. He was interested in all kinds of things going on there. He was reading Nietzsche. He had a number of close friends, mm -hmm. some of whom were probably also lovers. And uh, he uh, was very keen to live as full a life as possible. He has the story about turning up uh, on exam results day, looking at the third class results, finding his name wasn't there, and going home assuming he had failed, not having looked in the second class lower division. Okay. Then somebody else told him that he had passed. He studied natural sciences. So he must have had some sort of conceptual basis in order to pass. Mm -hmm. Even though, interestingly, then when he comes back to India uh, in 1912, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't become a scientist, right? He, he actually practices law, uh, just like his father had. I mean, that was a very common route for uh, many elites. It still is, if you, mm -hmm. if you go to Cambridge or Oxford. You do some sort of undergraduate degree, and then you train as a barrister or a solicitor. Right. And then you go into law. It's, it's a training which enables you to keep class. Mm -hmm. And uh, so because, of course, it was assumed that Jawaharlal would inherit Motilal's very affluent practice, he um, went to London and uh, trained as a barrister and was called to the bar like his father had been. Right. In 1916, he makes the acquaintance of a, someone who will play a very important role in his life, and that is Gandhi. Um, tell us a little bit about how they met and kind of what that relationship was like at this stage in his life. So we're talking about um, during the First World War and so long before independence, but there are already stirrings of a kind of nationalist movement for independence. I mean, I think he comes back after the First World War when uh, Gandhi has already been around for a while in, in 1916. In February, he was actually uh, in Ireland during the time of the Easter Risings. So he came, he came back, I think, in the early 20s. And um, by this time, Gandhi has begun to form a little following and is close to his father. Um, he's very inspired by uh, Gandhi's ability to reject uh, the elite society that he's used to, and he finds a mentor and an alternative father figure in Gandhi. Mm -hmm. and, and Gandhi himself at this, at this stage is, is the undisputed leader, right, of the, of the nationalist movement? Well, that's actually not clear uh, at the time. So Gandhi comes back to India, and uh, he doesn't have a following. He doesn't have uh, anybody who will work with him. So he starts to try to link up with existing organizations. And Gandhi's first causes are civil liberties causes against uh, the emergency provisions against civil liberties put in place by the First World War. Then he takes up a very unlikely cause. He takes up the cause of the the caliphate in um, in Istanbul, the abolition of the Khilafat at the end of the First World War in 1924 by uh, Kemal Ataturk takes the winds out of his sails a little, but mm -hmm. uh, in the early 20s, he links up with the movement to restore the power of the caliph over 
the faithful of Islam. Now, Gandhi not being a Muslim is probably trying to link up with a, an issue which will give him some kind of traction. At the same time, he uses a very interesting set of um, um, adjunct forces um, as local organizers. He talks to local leaders, for instance, in Bengal, and the people he can organize there are referred to as revolutionary terrorists or anarchists. Mm-hmm. And their job is to assassinate British officials. But their uh, intermediary tells them that for the purposes of a Gandhian movement, they should at least pretend to be nonviolent. So Gandhi's following isn't a very clear following, but then um, Gandhi himself asks to be declared dictator for the duration of the movement. That's his phrase. Hmm, and he uses it before 1922, so you can't say that he already has Mussolini in mind. Mm-hmm. But he definitely asked to be dictator, and he then unilaterally withdraws the movement. So by the time, um, by the time uh, various people are coming together around Gandhi, uh, there's an element of um, of faith in the effectiveness of his movements because he does manage to mobilize a great many people. Mm-hmm. But there's also a distrust uh, because of his style of functioning. And at the same time, once the Congress decides that Gandhi will be the face of the movement, then they do back him in public, even though they may have many misgivings in private. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you mentioned that Gandhi kind of tended to blow hot and cold, right? Several times he, he'll start uh, a particular movement and then, as you said just now, unilaterally withdraw it. Um, one of the events which really galvanizes the the Indian independence uh, movement is, of course, in April 1919, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. Um, tell us what role that played in kind of crystallizing the views of Jawaharlal and also of his father, Motilal. Well, uh, Jawaharlal had always been skeptical about the good intentions of the British. He felt, because he had studied in England, that everyday racism was quite a strong element of British policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he believed that uh, an independence movement that simply waited for the British to change their minds in a liberal fashion was not doing enough. And of course, his model for this was Sinn Féin in Ireland. Right. So he would actually write to his father on these themes and try to educate his, his father in a more radical direction. But his father believed in the good intentions of constitutional uh, progress until Jallianwala Bagh, where he realized that, in fact, much of British opinion was on the side of uh, General Dyer, who had conducted a massacre Mm -hmm. uh, in order to teach the Indians a lesson, as he put it himself. Right. So that kind of shocked even even Motilal into viewing the the British in a a different light, right? Yeah. Uh, Now, another... If we, we kind of move along in the chronology, we come to December of 1929. This is when uh, there's a key uh, Congress um, meeting, and at that meeting, they uh, they pass a resolution called the Purna Swaraj Resolution, meaning complete independence. Explain for our listeners what, what the difference was, why it was such, was such an important resolution. 
Um, so in the run-up to the resolution in 1929, there had been discussions on a new constitution for India. So the argument that the British had made from the First World War onwards, that they were gradually giving power to an Indian elected uh, government and would then leave in good order, mm-hmm. uh, had led to various constitutional arrangements that required Indians to take power on certain subjects and in certain provinces, but not in the really important subjects. So the British reckoned that if they had communications, external affairs and defense, um, and they controlled the economy, they could basically run India even if everybody else uh, in power was Indian. Right. And uh, so through, uh, from 1927 probably all the way till 1935 when a new constitution was formed, there were discussions as to what the next constitution for India would look like. Um, and one proposal on the table was dominion status, rather like Canada or um, Australia, mm-hmm. or, uh, which would give a modicum of self-government under the crown. Uh, but because the Indian model for uh, dominion status was hedged with so many um, caveats, uh, Nehru said that if by a certain amount of time the British had not agreed to their demands, uh, Nehru Jr. said that uh, he would uh, stand for complete independence without a connection to the British crown. His father had stood for a continued connection to the British crown and therefore dominion status. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the two were uh, intimately uh, connected with um, how much economic and political independence from a larger imperial setup uh, that could be achieved by India. Right. So the second world, obviously, we're skipping over important events, but we don't have time to cover everything. So um, just to, to give the listeners a sense of, of the chronology, of course, the Second World War uh, begins and Nehru and several other Congress leaders spend a considerable chunk uh, of the Second World War in jail, partly because of the, the, the Quit India movement. Now, they come out of, they're released from jail in, in June 1945. And you write in the book that, in a se- in a certain sense, they had lost the kind of their sense of the, the the political landscape because they were they didn't they did not realize that in the meantime the Muslim League had actually uh, really consolidated its support and and this then led to them, especially Nehru the Jr., underestimating uh, the strength and the determination uh, of the Muslim League when it came to the various negotiations uh, at Simla and then um, uh, the various uh, conferences until we get to um, August of 1946, which is when Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League, calls for the so-called Direct Action Day. Uh, Give us a brief sense of how events then rapidly, very rapidly unfold in, in the succeeding months and how we get to finally independence in 1947. Well, so when the Second World War breaks out, um, Jawaharlal Nehru is the main negotiator on international issues for the Congress. His father died in 1931, and he would have been the other person who could negotiate both with the British and uh, with Muslim elite groups. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Allahabad elite was very connected uh, 
across religious lines. Uh, but because right through the Second World War, most of the elite Congress leaders were in jail, uh, the British needed to look for other groups who would speak to them and who would participate in a semblance of uh, government. It, it wouldn't have been legitimate to conduct um, the government of India, which was technically an ally, on the basis of the claim that uh, the Second World War was a fight for freedom in the world and still have a suppressed colony. But in effect, that's what happened. And so the, the Muslim League was invented and built up by the British during the Second World War as an organization that the British claimed spoke for people who were not spoken for by the Congress. So their argument was, we can keep the Congress in jail because the Congress is only a faction. Mm. And there are other people who will speak to us and play with us. So by the time the war comes to an end, the British have actually created a power which they can't put back in the box and say that they won't talk to them anymore. And at this point, it's in the British interest to pass power over to a united country uh, because they have interests to look after, and right. that becomes increasingly difficult. So, um, by this point, of course, the idea of British power has collapsed when stories of uh, the British running away from the Japanese start to return to India um, uh, among the refugees from Southeast Asia of Indian origin, who basically have to flee as best they can and mostly on foot and many of them die. And the picture is of the complete collapse of British authority. So the idea that the British can have any role in a future is less uh, viable. Mm -hmm. Then again, for several years, various organizations have been building paramilitary forces. Um, each ethnicity or religious group which has a political uh, organization also has a paramilitary group and this is a recipe for violence across the country so at the point that partition happens nobody's really in control Nehru himself uh, tries to negotiate till the end and realizes that uh, it won't happen so he wryly says at the end uh, we thought at the time by cutting off the head we would get rid of the headache right. Uh, it's not a set of events that anybody was really in control of, although various negotiations and negotiators uh, um, were ongoing at the time. Mm -hmm. So in 1947, in August 15, 1947, independence is proclaimed. Before we continue with the story, I'd like to just tease out three aspects of Nehru's political uh, makeup, and in a certain sense of his personality too, which are his nationalism, his idea of, of nationalism, his socialism, and his foreign policy. Let's, let's take those in turn. What comes out very strongly in, in, your, in your book is that his nationalism was uh, an inclusive nationalism, uh, a sense that India was ultimately a multi-ethnic, multilinguistic, multicultural society and that it only made sense that way. And of course, there you see also the, the influence of Gandhi, right? Tell us a little bit about where, where those ideas came from and, and how they kind of crystallize into his, his understanding of what 
Indian independence should be for? Well, there is an influence of Gandhi. There's also a, a very strong influence of early Soviet nationalities policy. So uh, it's, it's an interesting combination. Gandhi believes that the entities that make up India are its religious communities. Um, Nehru believes that uh, to deal with India through religious communities is to lose the battle of building a modern state to obscurantist forces. So there's a strong set of disagreements that comes up quite early uh, between Gandhi and uh, a number of others in the Congress. And the Congress starts to organize its socialist wing by the mid-1930s. Nehru thinks that nationalism is a stage on the route to something better. And um, he and other socialists would argue that if a country is not free, then a liberating movement can use a kind of nationalism to achieve freedom. But that nationalism is a stage on the road to something better, because otherwise all you have is the exchange of one set of exploiters with another set of exploiters. Mm -hmm. right. So he's actually an anti-nationalist in many ways, and he's constantly talking about a better world where everybody must work together. He's very clear from um, the early 1930s that international agreements must be maintained. He's a great supporter of the Spanish Republic during the Spanish Civil War, and he says the fate of Spain today is the fate of Europe tomorrow. So the fate that will be decided in Spain mm -hmm. will then decide the fate of the world as well. And he was quite prescient about that, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> and that ties into his foreign policy, right? Because that was, of course, characterized by, by non-alignment. Um, Tell us how how he understood that that concept and what 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 where he saw India, uh, what kind of role he saw India playing. So when he uh, started talking about non-alignment, he was very clear that it's not neutralism because that was a term that was used in in the press internationally for the position of countries like India. And he started uh, making the point that if small countries newly independent wanted to be substantially able to create something new, that they would need to find a way to be independent of the demands of either bloc in the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, initially that meant both sides distrusted him. And uh, the, uh, the Western bloc in particular regarded him as a dangerous socialist. But with time, they worked out that he wasn't one of those. Right. <laughs> And uh, the Soviets distrusted him, but over time came to appreciate that they could uh, um, they could deal better with Nehru. And then mm -hmm. Nehru's India became a key negotiator and balancing force in many international conflicts: the Korean War, the Indo-Chinese settlement, mm -hmm. um, and a number of other quite important uh, foreign policy situations like the Suez Crisis. So all of these being moderated and negotiated through Indian intervention meant that uh, India, if you like, was more important in a foreign policy scenario than its, uh, its international weight would allow for. It was still a poor country. Um, and, and his socialism was was also um interesting right because in this in this respect perhaps he was 
perhaps he was um, less exceptional in the sense that at the time, there was a widespread sense that the state has a very important role to play, right? More, more perhaps than, than we have in our own time. But even in the, even in the capitalist West, there was a sense that um, you know, the state is an important actor and so on and so forth. Tell us a little bit about how, how, what he understood by, by socialism. Well, for him, socialism was, uh, on the one hand, a genuine attempt to empower ordinary people to decide their own lives. And on the other, it was a state-run industrialization program. Mm -hmm. um, so the one is a kind of uh, heavy industry-based Soviet model, and the other is a form of socialism that most uh, socialist countries and certainly most third world countries that claim to be socialist ran away from. Nehru was very keen on the democratic aspects of socialism, but uh, most countries like Ghana um, moved away from democracy very quickly after independence. Uh, the, the socialism that actually was practiced was really a form of capitalism, though, because what happened by not dispossessing the few indigenous capitalists that India had was to create a kind of uh, oligopoly in India where a, a few important industrial families controlled the economy and all the risks were taken by the state. Right. The Tatas and the Birlas, right? That's right. So the paradox is that uh, the best time for private industry in India in terms of levels of growth and development was the time where ostensibly India called itself a socialist state. Right. Yeah, that's pretty ironic. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there, there, there's kind of a, an interesting period right after uh, independence and until 1950, where two critical things happen. One is Gandhi is assassinated in January 1948, um, which itself, it seems to me, if I if I read this correctly, serves to, as it were, cement the relationship, the difficult uh, but respectful relationship we he had with Patel. The, the home minister. And then it's, uh, then Patel himself dies in 1950. And it's really after that, uh, that it becomes his party, right? After 1950, it's, it's his party and it's his country in a way. The, the, he, was, he was prime minister as well as foreign minister. It's his show, right? After that. But more or less till about 1962, it's his show. Right, yeah, yeah. And we'll come to that. Yeah, the Gandhi uh, murder cements one thing very strongly. Uh, after partition, there's this continued level of violence where Hindus kill Muslims, and Muslims, uh, at least in India, become a very defensive minority and they have to be protected by the state. But according to Nehru, the state uh, and the home ministry run by Patel is actually far more anti-Muslim and suspicious of Muslims than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, and Gandhi is killed by uh, the RSS, which is an organization that models itself very strongly on the fascist paramilitaries. It right. actually was openly supportive of the fascists during the war. And of course, the result of the Gandhi murder is to... Uh, temporarily discredit a Hindu nationalism because it was a Hindu who killed Gandhi. Mm -hmm. So this then creates an opportunity to talk about the dangers of 
aggressive sectarian politics, what in India is often referred to as communalism. But the uh, the death of uh, Patel is important in another way because the organizing of the new Indian state to be socially and politically um, forward-looking requires a change in laws, it requires land reform, and it requires people to be thinking in terms of uh, disarming the, the division between Hindu and Muslim. And... Uh, the right wing of the Congress was not interested in that. They were far more likely to want to keep existing social hierarchies in place. Right. That that's a very interesting dynamic. Dynamic, which will which will come back to. Um, now, of course, there were other uh, very significant challenges at this time. Right. The state itself had to be had to be consolidated. There were a whole bunch of princely states, which most of which acceded to the to the Union of India. Other others didn't. There was a big one, Hyderabad, right, right in the middle, um, which eventually uh, acceded uh, to the Union of India. Then there was, of course, the big problem of Kashmir, uh, but also what was then called NEFA, the Northeast Frontier Agency. This is in the, in the northeast of the country, and there were so there were all these challenges in the in the as it were in the high high Nehruvian moment, right? Um, let's kind of. Fast forward now to precisely what you mentioned earlier, the, the war with China in 1962, because what it seems to me after having read the book that um, really this was the beginning of the end in a way of, um, of Nehru's, Nehru's reign. So how, how, do, how, do we, how does it come to a, a full-fledged war? After all, in the early stages of, let's say in the early 50s, um, Nehru had a, had a, a Nehru and, and Mao and, and through Mao with, uh, or through Zhu and Lai rather, uh, with Mao, they had India and China had a, a fairly fairly good relationship, right? Nehru also had a had a sense that they were both Asian powers. Um, how, what are the kind of ingredients that start to create the the potential for friction between these two countries? Well, so the the cornerstone of Nehru's foreign policy is that. China and India have more interests in common than um, interests at uh, loggerhead. Mm -hmm. But there are long-standing border questions which are actually inherited from uh, the British government. There's a northwestern border with China, which, uh, which is beyond the Himalayas and uh, which is not even accessible to India. And uh, there's a northeastern border question. Now, without getting into the, the rights and wrongs of it, which um, have a long history as well, the British tried to manipulate the borders in agreement uh, with powers that were not sovereign. And India uh, inherited uh, these border questions. But there was actually a very strong presence of uh, anti-communist groups in India. Um, not... Uh, unsupported by uh, American money, mm -hmm. who were trying to create a wedge between India and China, because if that wedge collapsed, they argued, India would be forced to seek more support from the West and the non-aligned uh, fulcrum that was India would be uh, disrupted. Mm -hmm. So in that, uh, a partial... Um, role is played by the Sino-Soviet split, 
because of course then um, there is the question of uh, the Soviet Union supporting India and not China in, in the Sino-Soviet split. But it's really difficult to call it a war. It's a gradually engineered um, form of brinkmanship, if you like, which is engineered to create the conflict mm. that pulls India and China apart. So, in fact, it was quite clear that India had no viable defense and the Chinese uh, armies could have walked into much of India, but they didn't. They withdrew. Right. In, 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 so the war, the, the war or, or the, the, the hostilities, let's say, mm. begin on, uh, in late October of 1962. Interestingly, almost at the exact same time, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis happening, right? So it's pretty incredible that these two things were both happening at the same time. But in any case, as, as you say, uh, interestingly, the, the, the Chinese, after about a, a month or so in late November, um, unilaterally withdraw their troops. So it's really more of a, of a punitive expedition in a way. But another interesting thing that happens uh, right before that is, which we should mention given non-alignment and, and whatnot, is that um, Nehru accepts American aid, right? And and actually, even at some point, even panics and even asks the the Amer even basically asks Kennedy to intervene directly. Yes, and then denies it in Parliament. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that that's quite interesting. And 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 what what do we make of the the mistakes that Nehru undoubtedly made in 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 the whole run up, right? Because you as you 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 make the point in the book that the Chinese were we're really looking for a way to find some kind of agreement. They just, they were kind of allergic to the idea that they, they had to accept that India was imposing borders on them, which had really been uh, delimited by the British, who were essentially an imperial power in their eyes. And all they were looking for was a kind of quid pro quo, right? Maybe an arrangement in, in, in NEFA, which is now our, our natural Pradesh in the Northeast, um, as against some kind of slightly enlarged line uh, in, in Aksai Chin in, in, in Ladakh. But Nehru insists uh, on, on this idea that India's borders are non-negotiable. Why, why do you think he did that? So, on the one hand, he's under a lot of pressure from right-wing forces to not make compromises. And that the argument that Nehru is soft on China or on socialist forces is being pushed to a large extent to discredit him. Mm -hmm. On the other, there's the question of an undefined nationalism. And I think this is never uh, placed before people strongly enough. So uh, the Indian state after independence and under the direction of Nehru and a few people who do not wish to define who is a national in any ethnic or religious sense, kind of rely on a non-defined national where the borders are drawn around an entity and whoever forms uh, whoever falls within those borders is an Indian national. Right. Now, in order to do that, the borders can't be negotiable because then the whole definition of what is India becomes equally problematic. I mean, that is, in many ways, the way the debates play out. Uh, whether strategically it makes a lot of sense to say that the borders are non-negotiable when it's clear that uh, the borders that India wants according to the line called the McMahon line, are precisely the borders that China has granted to Burma, mm -hmm. which definitely didn't have any negotiating power uh, to the level that India had. 
So all the signs were that there could have been a negotiated settlement, but there were a great many uh, interests that wished to divide uh, India and China and to create a conflict. Now, uh, it's still not very clear in terms of uh, archival evidence exactly why India or certain people in the Indian um, administration pushed for a conflict. But it's also clear that they were not working for the same side at all, all times. Yeah, because it's interesting because you, you point out that, uh, you know, there, there, and even now, right, there are territories or there are, you know, certain sections of Arunachal Pradesh where the people are clearly ethnically closer to the people in Burma, for example, right? So even, and in fact, the, that whole area, the northeastern corner of India has, has often uh, felt itself to be somewhat separated, right, from the, from the main part of the, uh, of, of the subcontinent. So, and even today, you, you could argue, you know, in a way, the, the fact that India and China to this day uh, can't settle their differences on where the border is clearly, clearly suggests that there's something deeper going on, right? It's not about some random piece of rock somewhere. It's about the, uh, the understanding of, of the nation state itself, right? Who is to belong to this nation state? I mean, I think there's a certain amount of uh, state pride involved. It will be called national pride, but on both sides, on the Chinese side and on the Indian side, these are spaces where their ethnic minorities were not regarded as part of the mainstream, either in India or in China. Mm -hmm. So this is really a matter now of a kind of aggressive state pride. But on the other hand, India is now in no position to enforce any of this and mostly pretends that it's not happening. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, so as we said, the the 1962 war or clash is is very one sided. The Chinese basically swoop in, uh, slap India around, and then unilaterally withdraw. And that that has a market effect on on Nehru, even even almost physically. I mean, one uh, apparently one could see that he had, he was really a broken man after that. Um, now, just as we reach the, the end of our conversation, because I'd, I'd like to end with your thoughts on, on, on the present. Nehru dies in, in late May of 1964. Um, interestingly, he, he had said that he didn't want a religious funeral, uh, but he was given one anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Although he did want, you, you are right, that he, he did want his ashes to be scattered over the countryside, which, as you point out, is in a sense an interestingly kind of spiritualist take on, on death, right? Yes, well, it's difficult to know exactly uh, how he made that transition. Uh, he certainly uh, wasn't, wasn't such uh, an, uh, an atheist that he hated religion, which is often mm -hmm. said about him today. He was more agnostic about what form of faith people took. He himself didn't regard it as important to himself. But this symbolic reunification of his mortal remains with the country that he had come to love mm -hmm. was a symbolic act that appealed to him a lot. Right, yeah. One gets the sense that he was mostly just allergic to the kind of divisive sectarian use of religion, right? In, or the communal, as they were, use of religion. Yes, he was very keen on keeping religion within the realms of, of, of private practices. Mm -hmm. He wasn't at all keen on any form of religious ceremony or religious life uh, impinging on, um, on public life. Right. So you, you point out 
in the book that it, there's a certain sense in which Nehru's, uh, while Nehru was in, was in power, he was able to prevent the Congress party from actually turning further to the right. And at one point, in fact, even before or after the, the, the confrontation with China, his main uh, supporters were actually the Communist Party. Yes, it, uh, the, the, um, the branch of the Communist Party that was pro-Soviet uh, Union was definitely on his side. Right. And so, so that, that got me thinking, you know, uh, especially if we, if we, con- if we contrast, con- kind of compare and contrast where India is today with the ideals uh, of, of Nehru. Is there a sense in which the, the, the current rise in, in kind of communal and divisive communal majoritarianism, the Hindutva politics and, and all of that, is in a way the, the kind of inevitable but postponed destination, so to speak, of, of Indian politics? Was, was Nehru and Nehruvianism, in a sense, only kind of a delaying act? Well, at some level, one has to say that uh, the forces that Nehru represented uh, had never fully won out, that they controlled and dominated a certain kind of uh, progressive politics. I mean, if you, if you see it differently, the language of everyday politics in the Nehruvian state is recognizably a language of politics that you would see in states uh, that are democratic and have rational discussions and have parliaments. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there was always uh, a sense that um, the rules of democracy rig the rules of the game against the obscurantists, the communalists, um, and uh, the religious fundamentalists. And that was, in fact, one of the things that Nehru and a few others who considered themselves progressive and socialists sought to do. There were also people who were not particularly socialists, but definitely believed that a state that worked on backward principles was more dangerous than it ought to be. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, um, you could say that uh, the whole Nehruvian period was a holding operation. And uh, the ugly politics that was somehow natural to a late developing aggressive nationalism is what is there now. But that kind of assumes that the one is the natural development and the other is somehow illegitimate. And I think we're really back to the balance of international forces. I think that a state such as India has today Mm -hmm. is much more a product of uh, the 1990s and the post-1990s world than it is of the 1950s. My, my last question uh, to you, Dr. Zachariah, it's a somewhat impossible question, perhaps especially for, for a historian, but I'd like to ask it nonetheless. What, what do you think Nehru would make of India today, 70-odd years after independence, with the current Modi government in power? He would see it as a complete defeat. He would not be able to actually see anything of what he had sought to put in place in it. That's, um, it's quite clear that um, the forces that are now in power are forces that he knew and recognized had to be combated. Mm-hmm. Um, there again, we can take it back to the, the conflict between Nehru and Patel. At the time of Gandhi's murder, the RSS, which is now in power, 
is considered a really um, um, dangerous and fascist organization. There were several people that already called them fascists then. Uh, Patel believed that they had to be brought into the system in some way, that they had to reinvent themselves as an organization without political ambitions, without a political party. Nehru believed that they were dangerous in all respects. And again, the compromises with allowing them to continue to exist means that today the RSS is a fascist organization with the longest continuous existence. In 2024, it will celebrate 100 years. Yes, it's very interesting. Well, on that sobering thought, we'll have to uh, end it there. The book is titled Nehru. It's published by Rutledge in its uh, historical biography series. The author is Dr. Benjamin Zachariah. Uh, Dr. Zachariah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, so long. <laughs>